Hi, welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering Podcast. I'm here today with Devin, Sarah and Terry, and we're going to be talking about the acceptability of direct air capture. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay, so you want to start off by giving all your full names, because I did not even bother trying to get the names and pronunciation right for three separate guests. Sure, it's Terry Satterfield at University of British Columbia. I'm Sarah Nawaz. I'm at the University of Oxford and the University of British Columbia. And my name is Devin Todd, and I'm at the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions, headquartered at the University of Victoria. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a postdoc uh, at Oxford. I spend a bit of time there, but mostly I'm based in British Columbia. So I'm sort of a, a hybrid remote person right now. Right, so you're, you're, you're not at two universities rather than just not being at one of them, right? My primary affiliation is with Oxford, but I also have some work, that, namely this project that we're going to speak to you a bit about today. That's that's based at UBC slash PICS. <laughs> it's a bit of a, we've got a bit of a, a complex institutional affiliation situation happening. Yeah, so PICS is the institute that Devin is, is at, the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions, based at the University of Victoria. And um, is that actually on the Pacific Ocean? I can take a walk in any of three directions for 20 minutes and hit the water. Okay, that's fine. As long as you've got one that doesn't get you wet, then you're all okay. Get back to civilization. Do you want to give us your roles in this piece of research? I'm the project lead, but Sarah has kept me company on that all the way through on looking at public perceptions of these new technologies as they are being developed. And we've worked on other new technologies together as well. I'm a, I'm a postdoc, postdoctoral researcher, working with Terry on this project. We have another colleague, Guillaume, who is involved, who's a co-author in this paper, who's also involved, not on the call today. And yeah, we've also got Devin, who's not actually on this paper, but has been really helpful and crucial to guiding our kind of technical understandings of, of these technologies, and particularly this solid carbon project which maybe we can say a bit more as well. Okay, so before we get uh, too deep in the weeds on the project, if you could give us the title and journal for your paper, that'd be great. Well, I won't mention the journal yet because it's not published or approved for publication. Last revisions are underway, but the... Well, it will um, be by the time that this gets broadcast, don't forget, so you can mention the <laughs> journal. Assuming, assuming. Uh, yeah, the title is... Oops, sorry. Now it's my, uh, I just sent that to you, didn't I? Sorry. It's amazing the number of people that come on this show and they can't remember the title of their own paper. So you're, you're in good I should good know it. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> We're all imposters, really. I think, yeah, I think that uh, helps a little bit. The title is well, I'll, I'll read it out because I'm okay. on it. So it's called right. Exploring Public so. Acceptability of Direct Air Capture and Storage, Climate Urgency, Moral Hazards, and Perceptions of the Whole versus the parts for carbon dioxide removal system. Nothing if not snappy. So, <laughs> great. So with a journal that as of today's date isn't true, but will be by the time this gets published, is what? It is under revision at climatic change. A journal I've submitted to on several occasions that never actually get anything published in at all. So you'd be doing better than me if you get published in that. So tell me in a couple of sentences what the basic premise of this paper is. What are you trying to understand and why? These are really complicated technologies. They have a lot of moving parts, quite literally, both above ocean and below seabed. 
and and they're new. Most people don't have uh, any notion of the idea of drawing down carbon atmospheric carbon dioxide and what that means and why we need to do it. So it's an effort to look fairly deeply at one system being proposed for a pilot project to see how people take in the idea of that, whether they think it's a good idea or not. The system that we studied in this paper is referred to as solid carbon. Devin might want to kick in with technicalities, but in essence, it is using direct air capture, um, either floating at sea or on shore. And that's a system, there's a few systems globally, but one of them is in Squamish, BC, not too far from here. So using a system that essentially has elaborate fans that draw down carbon dioxide, convert that to liquid form, and then pump that into the seafloor where the basalt that resides there is perfect kind of geologic formation for taking on that material and ideally converting it to a form of rock, carbonate rock. And the energy driving the system right now that's being proposed is wind, but other renewables could also drive such a system. So if it's in Squamish, I'm assuming it's got the carbon engineering front end, is that right? That's right. That's the proposed okay. so, so you're saying it's power, right wind. Yes. And, yeah. and just to mention that the, the architectures that we're considering were not overly wed to the particular direct air capture technology. In all likelihood, for a modular ocean-based solution, we would be looking more towards the solid sorbent direct air capture technologies as exemplified by Climeworks or Global Thermostat. If the proposed architecture is a nearshore on the coast, solution, then something like carbon engineering might be more applicable because of its size. You mentioned the energy source. Yes, carbon engineering is, is principally designed around natural gas. However, there are methods you could approach to electrify that. The sequestration stage is the carb, fundamentally the carb fix system where you're taking the carbon dioxide, putting it down a borehole, and then it's reacting into basalt layers where it remains stable. It roughly, yes. However, a distinction between what we're proposing and what CarbFix does is that we would, instead of pre-dissolving our CO2 within fluid and then sending that dissolved CO2 and fluid down the borehole, we would be using the fluid that is naturally resident within the reservoir. But the end result is the same, which would be the conversion of the CO2 into mineral carbonates. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that because we actually had a podcast on whether the limiting factor for the carb fix system is whether you could get enough water down the hole and carb fix themselves, I believe, have actually started trials using seawater because fresh water might be a limiting factor. And from what I understand, although it's not been the subject of the podcast, I haven't prepared my brain to reveal information on this. The seawater does work okay, from what I recall, but that may be entirely unreliable, but that's just what I can recall right now. So, if you could talk me through the methodology that you use to understand people's public perceptions on this and the results that you got when you asked them for their opinions, that'd be very helpful. Sure. I mean, there were a few stages. The first one to note is that we focused, population of focus was Washington State and British Columbia. So a representative sample of a little more than 2,000 in that region because it's the region where the pilot was proposed. And then... Uh, in the survey itself, because this is super unfamiliar to people, we had to provide a, just a definition of what 
drawdown of, of atmospheric carbon was and why that would be happening. And then we had them evaluate uh, a few different forms of negative emissions technology. And then we described solid carbon in stages that we just described for you with a visual so people could kind of grasp the idea. And we asked initially not for acceptability, but for comfort, because initial responses are more likely to be sort of a gut feeling sort of response to things. So we had a scale that was very comfortable to very uncomfortable. And then we asked a lot more questions about it, what parts it concerned them or not, whether they saw certain things as beneficial, whether they saw certain things as risky. And then we asked the same general comfort level again to make sense of how people responded in time one and time two as they sort of became familiar with the technology. And then as with most surveys, there were other sort of variables we introduced just to understand people's attitudinal profiles and how that might affect their judgments. How was this conducted? Yeah, so we used a, a panel, what's known at a company called Qual- Qualtrics, and using panel surveys online. Now, online with people already a part of a panel for such per- for survey purposes, calibrated to census tracts in both countries. Okay. And what has been the history of this area? Has there been a lot of issues with uh, poorly consulted or harmful development in this area? Or has it not got that kind of history? A good question. Yeah, I mean, the sort of the, let's say, affiliate history might be very big protests over certain oil and gas developments. Washington State, uh, a coal port very, very much near the border. In BC, big debates over liquefied natural gas pipeline that's going in, as well as an extension of a pre-existing bitumen pipeline. So the oil and gas controversies are loud and local, for sure, but nothing in particular on this technology, just just affiliate ones. And did you find that most of your participants had a good understanding of technology, or were they building up their understanding pretty much you were telling them? I think we assume they were building up as we were telling them in that, in that you know, we took, I think the US and UK understanding of these systems is very low right now to the extent that knowledge tests on them have been done. And I would say that's sort of on CDR generally, right? Like there's yeah. not really much research that we're aware of at present on this particular configuration of, of, C- of a CDR approach. I'd say none. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people are just starting to get their head around net zero. I'm not even sure that the understanding of that is accurate. I can share a quote. It's from 2020, <laughs> but this is from a morning consult poll in 2020. And the answer here was uh, 39% of U.S. adults said they haven't seen, read, or heard much about carbon removal practices and technologies, while another 34% have consumed nothing at all on the topic. But one of the concerns I have about this class of research is that there are lots of different studies that look at various different aspects of public acceptability. But as far as I'm aware, there's no standardization of the education method or of the panel selection process to ensure that you're comparing like with like. So it's very difficult to get a cross-study comparison. Have you got any insights into how that might be addressed? Well, there are a few studies who have done cross-population comparisons, US-UK, for instance, but I would say that 
most don't or there isn't a baseline level of knowledge or even a knowledge test that everybody is using. I mean, I think the general assumption is that these are emerging judgments, emerging perceptions. And so there's a lot of desire to do, you know, sequential studies across time as those ideas emerge. And one of the bigger questions is, you know, do people have an absolute kind of strong rejection of these things because they affiliate them with something they really don't like? Or um, is the conversation open at this point? Are people curious, interested, somewhat open to the possibility under certain conditions and so on? So what did you find? What's the top level result you got? Were people broadly happy with this technology or very wary of it? Or did they feel they didn't know enough to answer the question? Or what? Um, well, in this paper, the, the first response to the idea of a solid carbon project was, you know, fairly positive. I think it was about 58% uh, were comf- very or, or comfortable with the idea of this. And then, uh, and then they got a number of kind of concerns with the system. We, we looked at it from sort of above sea parts and below sea parts to see what aspects of the physical system was, you know, least desirable to people. So after those risk and benefit and sort of concern questions, the acceptability or the comfort with solid carbon went down uh, from about 58% to just below that, I think. Uh, I have to look that up. I think it's 40, it was under 50, sort of 44 or 48%. That's not totally surprising. I mean, if you ask someone to kind of consider something in more detail, generally, we, we know that they tend to kind of focus a bit on the more on the risks aspect of that. So they'll give those particular weight and and likely have slightly less comfort or sort of less overall affectively positive views on something. So you're talking to people about a development which is happening in their area, right? So that you're not asking them about an abstract technology that could be built anywhere on earth. You're, You're asking them about something which is planned for their area. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Offshore for their area. As a proposed pilot, but not a yet rolled out one. And the end result was that fewer than fifty percent, or lower than fifty percent of people were happy with the idea. So, what was the objections from the people the, that were well, not happy? That would yeah, I would say on the second ask, it was below fifty percent. On the first version of the question, it was above. So that's that sort of once you start thinking about things in a little more detail that are unfamiliar, you tend to attend more to the risk side of things. But the other thing that was sort of interesting is those who uh, kind of supported or strongly believed in the benefits of such a system were very stable. Um, They didn't move around much in their judgments. But by and large, what we found that the things that were driving those opinions were both greater concern for all of those subsea parts. So piping liquid CO2 to the ocean floor, injecting it and waiting for it to go solid as carbonate rock. Those were the parts of the system that tended to drive that concern or, or less comfort with it. And, uh, you know, the other components were more, did they trust those who would be regulating it? And more positively, people who had a strong sense of responsibility for nature tended to be supportive of the system, both in the first ask and the second ask. And again, people who were benefit-centric were supportive um, by a strong ratio, both in the first ask of that question and in the second. 
So it's a bit of a complicated story, but if there is anything else there that, I mean, we had a less, less of a strong effect, but we did still have a significant finding with regard to climate urgency. So folks who mm -hmm. perceive climate change to be particularly urgent or severe were more comfortable. So the people who were concerned about the subsea infrastructure, were they concerned about it on principle or were they concerned about the novelty and the lack of proven technology that was being used? Yeah, there's nowhere to tell because, of course, we're controlling the questions we're asking. But the kinds of questions we asked were just what level of concern do you have for these different parts? So, you know, the injection, the mineralization, et cetera. And so people who had, you know, high concern for those parts tended not to support or not to be comfortable with a solid carbon project. And then the other ones were more, they were physical risks. So we had items like um, you're, you think that there's some possibility of explosive discharge or an unnoticed leakage or consequences for human or ecosystem health. So that tended to be where the, the risk thinking lay. And the, the strongest response was for the idea that the system might cause pollution in the ocean. But there were also sort of moral risks. People were worried that solid carbon might encourage, you know, the continued use of fossil fuels or fossil energy, or it might be very expensive as compared to other climate solutions. So, And how much did that influence people? Was it a small minority of people that were influenced by that? Was it a large concern? Well, the physical risks only showed up after they were introduced. So, for instance, we asked them about solid carbon, then we introduced risk, benefit, and concern questions. And so it only became an influential variable in the second version of that question. So once we had introduced those ideas, but once it was introduced, it was a fairly strong predictor of discomfort. Same with moral hazard. Um, yeah. Same, yeah. Same with those kind of what we refer to as moral hazard or the continuance of fossil fuel. And so to what extent... Do you think that this discomfort or otherwise can be uh, a proxy for protest or active opposition to the development? Because people might be mm -hmm. uncomfortable about a wide variety of things, but they don't really bother that much. And then once they're built, they just get used to them, right? So some people being uncomfortable doesn't necessarily mean that 50% of people would be unhappy with the development which is built and commissioned. It That's might right. just mean that yeah. people... You know, 50% of people have got concerns in the planning phase rather than, you know, an actual objection to it going ahead. So could you give us guidance as to wh where, where that ends up in terms of people's sure. sentiment and opposition? I'm not sure what Devin and Sarah would say about this, but one observation is that, you know, if you compare to other studies of new technologies, what is clear here is that there is an openness still. People, yeah, people moved around a bit after new information, but they didn't kind of jump to an absolute rejection, which you've seen in some other technologies. Fracking would be the best example of that. So in perceived risk studies in that field, you know, there's a pretty absolute line in the sound sign in the sand, sorry, drawn there. So this is skepticism and concern about management rather than an in-principle objection and one which is likely to be insurmountable. Your suggestion is that people are quite amenable to evidence of good management, good practice, good regulation. People just want to see these things well run, right? 
I would say they are open with those considerations in mind. Sarah, did you want to say anything about the trust distrust? I was also thinking about that in response to this question. Yeah, I mean, we did find that, I guess, perhaps unsurprisingly, that folks who are sort of more distrusting of the relevant institutions uh, tend to be less comfortable both before and after. And then those who are more trusting tend to be uh, more comfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that there's anything too surprising there. I guess what I would just add in general is that I think, you know, our goal with this kind of a, a survey is not to not to predict who's going to be, you know, whether solid carbon is going to generate a sort of mass protest of, or not, or a mass sort of like embrace um, and support more to say, what are the possible directions this could go? I think we're at an interesting time with with something like solid carbon or other types of perhaps related CDR approaches where I don't think this is, they've sort of reached the kind of polarization that a lot of technologies see That's right. these days. Yeah. And so we feel like this is a really interesting juncture to study people's views at because it really could go either way for, for some of these technologies, especially something like solid carbon, which has, as Terry's been saying, analogies to other technologies that in this region in particular, people have, you know, a particular opposition to. Very strong feelings. Yeah. yeah. So there's some associations there that, that could come to play. And that's part of what we're trying to kind of, what we found, what we find is sort of coming, rising to the surface with this paper. We also wonder okay. what might've happened if we collected this data later in, we was kind of spring of 2021, but if we had collected it here in BC or Washington state late, um, late year, you know, it was a summer of enormous wildfires that were not long after that followed by flooding that literally took out the main artery into and out of Vancouver. So the beach had the 50 degree heat in Canada, heat time, and, and then the, the, the little village That's right. that reported it just was destroyed completely a couple of days later. Yep, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That seemed to have quite an effect on uh, those immediate local disasters seemed as far as I understand, it's quite a strong effect on public opinion. I think Australia noticed a, a shift towards the green agenda as a result of the widespread wildfires that Australians experienced uh, a couple of years ago. So, uh, yeah, I think that would probably have influenced opinion. It does seem like a long time ago. It gives you an idea of just how long it takes to get stuff through the academic publishing sausage factory, right? It's a slow mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. So you're, did you notice any partisan polarization in the results. I mean, what I've heard from other sources is that direct air capture and carbon removal generally is remarkably bipartisan. Yeah, we didn't notice deep political fault lines on this. There's a couple of sort of political worldview questions developed by Dan Cahan and others that are often used for that to pick that up. And so apropos that earlier mention of fracking, uh, those fault lines show up very strongly on, on all controversial topics, whether it's fracking or gun control or something else. Uh, so that just didn't appear here at all. So or had very little effect. So if we were to summarize your research, then it appears to be that people are skeptical of a technology which is yet to be deployed. Um, they want to know that it's well run and well managed. And most of the concerns that they have are local concerns, as opposed to, in principle, concerns about the deployment of technology anywhere on it. It's something that is very much about things that could affect their immediate local environment, such as, you know, earthquakes or explosions or general kind of poor neighborhood 
management as opposed to a conceptual opposition to the technology as a whole, right? I would say people are open but uneasy because it is a very big, very intervening technology and they're just getting their head around the idea, but also open. But the thing that we haven't really dug into, I think that is likely consequential for perceptions one way or the other, is uh, the scale of all of these technologies that might be employed. So once you start getting into very big infrastructure that might be needed for one system versus another, it's hard for people to understand scale, but it's likely to have an effect. It's also hard for people to understand what's meant by a durable solution. So I think those, as those ideas start to be introduced into survey work more fully, we, we tried our best, but uh, just to put a reference point in there, but on scale, but it's, it's a difficult thing for people to get their heads around. It wasn't necessarily considered within the paper, but something, you know, we're thinking about is also the, the origin, let's call it, of the CO2, as that might could could influence the the principal dimension that you mentioned. Solid carbon is proposing to use direct air capture. So there's not that, and then apply geosequestration. So there's not a direct link to oil and gas, um, uh, the sector there. Whereas other direct air cap capture solutions might be involved with enhanced hydrocarbon recovery, or perhaps we're thinking about just carbon capture applied to fossil point sources. And then how might that impact perception. So I think the perhaps the dirtiness of the CO2 might be an important factor. Whether it's point source or atmospheric. And one thing I wanted to ask was about the cultural aspect. So you're based at Canadian University, so I, I guess you're probably fairly au fait with Canadian culture, but my understanding of Canadians is that they are quite uh, remarkably non-confrontational. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard characterization of Canadians for me to agree with, I guess. I see us as, sure, there are stereotypes there, but, you know. I'm not saying it's right. Like, Canadians are famous for not trash-talking other people's sports teams. A pointed example of Canadian culture. Another (laughs) example is that apologizing for things has been written into law as not implying legal liability because Canadians can't stop saying sorry when they crash their cars so I, you know I, nobody likes to come from stereotypes to make our get our hackles up but they're not sure. entirely invented are they i mean i would just say that half the half the sample was american yeah i'm not sure we not canadian have that reputation so <laughs> perhaps the and there was almost no difference the fact that there was not a difference across is the culture of washington state quite similar to the culture of British Columbia, or is, is there a big cultural gap between the two, as you'd expect, from with one being, you know, stereotypically American and one being stereotypically Canadian, or is the fact that they are physically located close to each other, meaning that the cultures are sort of... Yeah, you know, to be honest, I would say there probably is some similarity there, but I would think actually that a potentially more impactful difference might be cultures, if we're comparing sort of the more coastal particularly sort of the maybe folks in, well, I guess Seattle's not not necessarily as coastal in the same way, but sort of a, you know, a, a big city population versus someone in eastern Washington or the interior of British Columbia. I would say that might be a more salient uh, difference. We still didn't find significant differences between 
between those groups. And yeah. One of the strongest predictors of voting intention in the US is population density. So it's not so much a red state, blue state, coastal interior thing. It's more that people who live in suburban or rural areas tend to vote Republican, and people who live in dense or denser suburban core areas tend to vote Democrat, right? Right. And so that kind of fits with the, the cultural divide that you're suggesting there, and but one that you say hasn't influenced results much because it doesn't appear that you have got the partisan polarization in this issue, which is common in a lot of other examples of that's right cultural yeah. divide in, in, in the American North American continent, right? That's that's right. Uh, and can you speculate as Canadians on how this might be perceived if it was done in other parts of Canada? I appreciate that geology is not um, necessarily suitable elsewhere, but you've got a very tectonically active coast, the Pacific coast and the Atlantic is much less tectonically active and therefore we imagine there's fewer opportunities for sequestration, although I might be wrong, but the American con- conception of their culture is crudely put preppies on one coast, hippies on the other. Uh, do you have something similar in Canada or the, or the coasts more similar? In- yeah, Atlantic Canada is its own world. I don't think it's quite the same. And there's a lot of oil and gas development, of course, off Newfoundland. It's been a lot of their economy for a long time. But coal in Nova Scotia, of course, before that. But so it's hard to say. You know, we would like to run that uh, on that, the run this work on that side of the country for sure. Uh, one of the reasons we didn't was, and Devin, you can speak to this, is just the depth of the seafloor. Because one of the ideas here is that at, at those depths, the pressure is such that no liquid is going to be moving around very much, at, whereas the ocean floor isn't as deep off the East Coast. Sorry, yeah, you know, as a project, we have to pick our battles, and we're focusing right now on the Cascadia site because there's multiple redundant trapping mechanisms for that CO2, although it probably will also could also work in the East Coast as well as, as, well as other sites around the world. And, and the other reason is, is our, our project partner, Ocean Networks Canada, they already operate a, a subsea data and power sensor infrastructure off the Pacific coast of Canada here and the site, what we call the Cascadia Basin. So a lot of your, your internet's already there to connect your sensors and watch what's going to happen. And that's, that makes the site particularly interesting locally. Go in there as not the social scientist, the, the, the Pacific versus the Atlantic side of things. It's, it's to me, I find it interesting that there is such a history and, and still current dependence on, on hydrocarbons in Atlantic Canada. And maybe that would mean there's less interest in in more green technologies there but on the flip side the drivers of concern that we observed in the in the west coast sample are the subsea sort of oil and gas affiliated looking like technologies perhaps the folks in atlantic canada don't really find that concerning at all that's possible but that's not tested yet is that because they have less west coast oil and gas infrastructure and therefore people are just less familiar and less comfortable with the idea of living around oil and gas in the West than they are in the East. Is that right? Yeah, there, there is no, if there's a moratorium. It's, it's legally, as I understand it, impossible to do oil and gas exploration off the West Coast of British Columbia. A couple of things that have been said 
make me think you might have some affiliation developer or whatever. So it's useful to understand perceived or possible conflicts of interest. I can, I can start us off on that. So the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions was founded back in 2008 by an endowment from the province of British Columbia. And it was designed to set us up at, at arm's length from the government as a, as a knowledge production entity for the benefit of, of BC as well as Canadians. And so in that sense, we run off of our endowment and we don't take money from others for services. We run several programs that provide funding for researchers to do work relating to climate solutions. And Solid Carbon, Solid Carbon submitted a, a proposal to one of our competitive programs called the Themes Partnership Program. They had a great proposal and they were awarded the money to do this research. And so in, in that sense, that's sort of the origin of of the support financially, at least for the current phase of the project. And so was the research in any way funded by or from the developers or was it funded by a third party that doesn't have a financial interest in the development? I'm not clear on that. There, there is, it's, it's, it's public money. It's public money for research. We don't have any developers who are on the project or a part of the project. We, we do have what we call solution seekers. So these are partners that are from the private sector or and or and communities. It's, it's, a, it's an open definition. We ask that projects come with solution seekers as co-developers of the research because we want research to be used and not just sit on a shelf. However, there is no money coming from any you know large engineering EPC firm or oil and gas entity right now. Certainly moving ahead with a demonstration to test the feasibility in the Cascadia Basin, that, that's a bigger financial ask than PICS can, can do. And so the project team is currently navigating what partnerships that they could form with, for example, philanthropic or government public money to, to be able to do this demonstration in a way that, for example, doesn't you know contaminate it with, with interests that we might not want. And is there any indication as to how likely this project is to go ahead? Is it something that seems highly speculative or is it something community are expecting to be built? And how has that stage of realisation affected people's perceptions of the project? I would say at this stage, it's it's still speculative. We we are hopeful that we will we will find the the financial resources to undertake the demonstration, but it's not at a stage where it's a it's a everyday conversation amongst folks in the in the cities, communities in Vancouver Island area yet. Uh, you say that you're hopeful. Doesn't that that comes across as being that you have a, a side? You're written for a team. Well, well, that. I'm yeah. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful in that. If you look at, for example, I'm hopeful because of the the changing discussion around climate and the role that ocean-based solutions might play in, in, in tackling climate change. And, and I'll, I can perhaps let Terence or, or Sarah speak more to this, but for example, in the draft decision material from COP, the COP that's happening and, and wrapped up just now, you know, there is a statement in there that they want to you know, consider more, more thoroughly the, the opportunities available in the, in the ocean environment. So it can be that the, the, the political space, those that hold the big bucks, might be uh, kind of turning their eyes to the ocean and there may be more more money there to to do work that we're proposing as well as other work that can be done in the space. You know, from a social science point of view, I would say I'm much, uh, I wouldn't be human if I wasn't looking for climate solutions right now, but on this particular one, 
my interest is more, wow, this is a really complicated technology. This is going to be difficult for people to get their heads around. What constitutes a reasonable way of trying to ask people about it and have conversations about it? And this is one effort, but we have others that are ongoing, sort of more small group intensive discussions, some other survey work. So I would say that it's really important at this point and with my social science hat on not to, you know, to be really careful about being coercive in designs and other kinds of things. You do your best. Any wording is going to affect people negatively or positively, but, you know, you do your best to keep the conversation open and figure out what people are thinking. Was the work pre-registered in terms of your methodologies and questions to make sure that there was uh, an opportunity to remove sources of bias from the work start before the research was done? We did two points. We, of course, um, pursued and were approved from the UBC Ethics Board for the work, but we also pilot tested it for wording um, in small groups. The survey company themselves ran a pilot. We ran the descriptions of technologies by people at PICS for careful and comprehensible wording. Yeah, we did quite a bit of upfront work in that regard. I would say just however, though, that I think that it's kind of impossible to produce a survey that can kind of be, have no sort of um, bias <laughs> that that is that arises in the data because you're all mm-hmm. actually impossible to remove any sort of framing effects from a survey. There's always going to be a way that you say something that has a certain meaning or significance for, for someone taking the survey. And so there's different ways. I mean, this is part of why we did the before and after. There's other things that we've done in past surveys and, and plan to do again in, in future surveys to try to make sure that we're looking at all the sides of, you know, how basically that we're looking at the ways that our uh, wording in the survey and our pre- presentation of the material affects what people are saying and responding and how they're thinking. But really getting rid of that effect is, is not really possible. I don't think anyone's expecting perfection. I'm just trying to establish whether you took steps through pre-registration and peer review at the beginning when you were setting the questions and the exercises to try and understand and eliminate potential sources of bias in the research. Yeah, we definitely did. And even though there's no perfect solution, I think the more important point is describing well in the paper what we did and why we did it to just sort of put out there for consideration those design logics and and the steps we took to make it as viable as possible. And what continuation work do you expect from this survey? Are you going back to resurvey this population or are you going to conduct similar studies on other technologies or to look at other projects run by the same developer but with (laughs) different areas of the country or the world? I would say yes, yes and yes. Right. In the immediate future, we're doing some what's referred to as deliberative, a small group work to dig more deeply into how people are making sense of this technology. But we're also wanting to compare it to others. I mean, there are, if you take, if you grow, for instance, huge volumes of macroalgae kelp, say, and bundle that and sink that to the ocean, uh, you know, how does that compare to something like this. So we also want to get into more comparative work and also dig deeply into questions of scale and how people can make sense of both the scale of the problem and the scale of the 
different solutions proposed. So comparison work is really key. And we also have another paper based on this survey. Um, it's looking at how people think about four approaches to uh, ocean-based carbon dioxide removal. So it sort of takes the solid carbon case in a more abstract form and compares it to uh, the technologies we study are coastal restoration, ocean fertilization, and ocean alkalinity enhancement. So that's another paper we can we can share. Uh, it's in review right now, so hopefully coming out soon. You know, a lot of the work so far has been terrestrial. It's been about mostly afforestation and other carbon capture and storage at, at the point of oil and gas production. But there hasn't been a lot on any form of ocean negative emission technology just yet. How do you feel that your work compares to other people's in this field? Do you think that generally the standard of work in this area is quite low or that it's particularly hampered by weak and understanding of technologies? How, how does it fit into a broader landscape of research from outside of your lab? Oh, I'm sure both Sarah and I would have a lot to say on this, but I would say that it is consistent with some research, recent research in that technologies that were once sort of off the table are, or there's a greater tolerance or openness for climate solution technologies, or that seems to be increasing in the recent period. Um, we have colleagues in the UK and the US who have done work on direct air capture and storage, uh, but it was mostly on direct air capture, not too much on storage. Looking at that compared to bioenergy and carbon capture and storage, they're, I would say they're finding similar things, but that's more heavily valence towards small group work. One reflection I have is just that I think, you know, something that I think Terry and I both have been trying to do in, in some recent work is trying to bring in to survey work, which, you know, is more quantitative, tends to have a different type of sort of methodological, but also theoretical approach to it. It tends to sort of say sort of, this is the, this is that we're trying to understand people's views. We're trying to predict sort of use things like demographics and attitudinal views to kind of predict how they're thinking. And I think we're both kind of interested in in taking some of the insights from other social science literatures, perhaps more anthropological or other more qualitative methods and, and bodies of work, and kind of try to operationalize some of those insights and see whether things like relationships to nature or people's sense of... Fragility of the marine environment. Exactly. And sort of seeing whether those insights can... can you know, stand up in a, in a survey context, what, what they tell us and sort of what might be missing from some of the existing quantitative um, approaches. In terms of rigor and quality scholarship and the appropriateness of the survey has been done today, you feel that the work that predates yours has been generally of very high quality? Do you say it's been a lot more mixed or do you think that there are serious and fundamental problems that are extensive throughout the field that need to be resolved? Well, I would say that I think the ocean as a space of investigation for carbon solutions is quite new. So there isn't that much out there at all. And I think there's quite a bit of really good quality survey work on terrestrial solutions, on carbon capture and storage before that, where people were wrestling um, very carefully with the particular designs of technologies. Not all of them brought in the variables that Sarah was just talking about, but there's there's a good body of literature there to draw from. I wouldn't want to, I think a lot of good, thoughtful work has been done there. So you'd say that your research extends a, a canon of quality work rather than looking to come in and address some 
really deep quality problems that have existed in academia before you did this research, right? Sure. It's not like one can't find, you know, a bad paper here and there, but by and large, there's quite a bit of good work. And the, yeah, the difference here is, again, moving into the ocean space and moving into technologies that aren't, it's not a single technology, you know, it's a bundle of things, each of which could have, have a really sort of positive or negative single a signal for people, as well as cited in a part of the world that, as we mentioned at the beginning, has had a lot of protest activity around oil and gas. So it's just trying to bring in the kind of richness of context and technology itself. Well, the reason I ask is because I see a lot of surveys that are done, and they either just document the priming effects that they've introduced, or be not noting them as priming effects, or alternatively, they elevate the opinions the people who are ignorant about a specific technology that they're asking about to a level which implies a much higher degree of considered opinion on the matter than is justified given the level of background knowledge that exists. So yeah. I actually find this whole body of scholarship to be quite concerning in many regards. I'm not singling out your study precisely because I, I haven't drilled down to detail of each question and things like that, but a lot of the work that I have seen it seems to try and present uh, Vox Pop as being canonical when, in fact, opinions are very uh, emergent and very easily swayed by the researchers' questioning and, and background information resources that they use. So I take a lot of this work with a pinch of salt, if I'm honest. From a project organization perspective, um, my, my gross characterization of a lot of the, the, the negative emissions technologies being developed right now is that they're they're done with very much a technocratic hat on with no regard for the social sciences or or implications of governance and something that very much i think distinguishes solid carbon from this um let's say technocratic group is is that from the outset of the project we have like a huge group of a very smart people in engineering, natural, social sciences, as well as law scholars and, and folks with expertise in the business sector. And we're trying to bring this all together. And so it's a bit of a catch-22. We want to have, we want to do the best we can with regards to the social sciences dimension. But to do that, they have to be integrated within the project design. It can't, I, I would challenge, it can't be something we just hire in for a one-off study. But it does bring in, yes, a concern that I think you're hinting at. Sure. If I see a survey that claims that it's provided an absolutely neutral tutorial on something and that everybody now fully understands that, or, um, yeah, I'm not rejecting the idea that there is work out there that is, in my estimation, overly coercive or overly naive on what people are responding to. Sure that work is out there. But there's some really great careful work, which is what we took more as our inspiration than aforementioned group. And I think this goes That's to me still, being very Canadian. <laughs> I think this just goes back to what I was saying earlier about really, like, I just don't think that it's possible to write a survey that doesn't have some degree of an effect that you're providing. And I think what Terry was saying earlier is like, the best you can do is, is really just try to document what those effects are, speak to them in your discussion, be really transparent and also be, I think, take everything with a massive grain of salt in this kind of in this kind of survey work because because it really is just the way it works. So Yeah. And it's I, very I think, early days. Yeah. That doesn't mean that there aren't fascinating insights and useful guidance and and sort of 
you know, for a project like this, you know, I think is a great way to do this kind of survey work because it can inform the actual, you know, design or rollout of a project like this and say, you know, these are the conditions in which under which people think that this kind of technology might move forward. And, and these are less so. And I think that's, you know, that's a that's a valuable thing from a from a thinking about sort of the responsible, ethical, et cetera, design and implementation of these kind of technologies. I would just add, if if we we as a project, we we need good information and it doesn't help us to get a bunch of bogus coercion feeding back into the project, it would compromise the rest of the of what everybody else is doing. I wonder if you could talk to me about the academic process uh, in terms of budget and headcount and peer review. Uh, and in terms of the degree of flexibility that you were having to exercise as the project unfolded. I'm not sure what you mean by headcount, but I would say we put a ton of design work into this. I mean, I, I just like the design puzzles when you've got something that's, you know, so new in people's imaginations. So Sarah and I and Guillaume before that uh, put a lot of work into into the design. We were not influenced in any way by the rest of the solid carbon sort of engineering and bench science sides of that team. It was more, here's how we're articulating for a lay audience this aspect. Can you vet it? Does that make sense? Is it accurate? To clarify my point about headcount, it may be, for example, that you worked with a survey company and they had a couple of full-time staff helping you organize this for a period of three months, or it may be that you did this in an entirely automated fashion with no humans outside the academic team. I think people are, who listen to this podcast are generally, generally quite interested in the academic process itself. But basically, we handed over a survey draft. They pre-tested it. Um, any other steps that were missing there that we haven't mentioned, Sarah? Yeah, so Guillaume did this part for the survey, but yeah, we, we, uh-huh. we wrote the survey, pre-tested it internally with colleagues and friends, I guess. <laughs> you know, folks who aren't necessarily experts in this area, then the process which Guillaume led is, you know, programming this into Qualtrics, which is sort of like a survey monkey type of maybe people are familiar, online survey implementation tool. Uh, then Qualtrics distributed the survey to their um, their panel, members of their panel. Um, and then we get the data through the Qualtrics system. We download it, we analyze it. Guillaume did the first pass of the analysis, and I and I did the second pass. And what, how long did it take everybody if you had to turn it into a kind of <laughs> full-time equivalent oh, job? How long did it take? Is it like two people for six months on the project, or did it take much longer or much less time, or what? Well, we like most people in academia might have several projects on the go. That's true for us. But, yeah, we didn't collect the data until spring of 2021. We started designing the survey intensively the fall prior to that. And then, you know, there's basically a a year of data analysis and drafting and sending things to review. So in this case, in this paper, first journal, we sent it to the desirable one for us. Uh, We'll see how that pans out. Okay. And was this your main project during that time? Or you were juggling around lots of other papers and teaching responsibilities? Or was it pretty much a singular one of many many (laughs) yeah lots of others teaching as well and other service obligations that's just that's just what the life looks like and in terms of budget you were funded for this work and so how much did it cost to get the Qualtrics panel 
work done externally? Well, I can't remember the exact budget. I'm recalling of just for the hiring of the data collection is not that expensive. It's, you know, in the order of eight to ten thousand dollars. Might have been as high as twelve. Sarah, do you remember? The I think it's less. That? I think it's more around eight grand US Canadian, I believe. About one point three with the US dollar at the moment. Okay. It's better at the time. <laughs> so to summarize, you run an online survey with around 2,000 people across uh, the British Columbia and Washington State area, uh, and you found that they've got concerns about direct air capture and sequestration in geological storage based largely on local factors that would be described as good quality project management. And the extent of feeling that people have expressed is based more on concern that things are run well rather than an implacable opposition to the project. And you certainly picked up no uh, emphasis on ideological opposition or partisan divisions when it comes to the accessibility of the project. You did it all around $10,000 of external funding and you've run it yourselves as a team of around two and over a period of around six months and got it into the first journal that you applied. More than six months for sure. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, the big expense on all this work is, of course, uh, labor, whether it's covered by university or Sarah's position as a postdoc. And the other two qualifications on the findings, I'd say, is that um, is the sort of the sense of climate urgency that drove support and the conviction of benefits for some groups, as well as the belief in responsibility for nature as a sort of surprising finding with regard to people's willingness to at least consider this option. So people view this project as contributing to uh, a solution to the wider climate change problem, and they were supportive in principle because of that fact. In principle, yes, and as a pilot. And it I would wasn't just... a massive rollout. And I would just caution that whenever we're talking about these effects, we're talking about predictions. We're not, we're not attributing sort of causation here. And just the guidance, what's the scale of the plant and the time scale on which it's supposed to be going to be built? The, a pilot we anticipate to be on the order of, of 10,000 to 50,000 tons of CO2 to be injected within a short period of time, hopefully in the order of days or weeks, because ship time costs a lot of money. And we would hope that the demonstration is successful and we see mineralization within a couple of years of a substantive amount of that CO2 and perhaps a, a pilot at small scale growing into a larger megaton size scale in the, in the fullest expression in the next, within the decade, let's say. So are you proposing or is the project proposing to do a, a test injection without building the plant and then build the plant later if the test injection goes well. Uh, yeah, that would that would make the most sense. It doesn't it's not sensible from a project execution kind of to take on the risk of, of building wind turbine and then DAC machine for just the purpose of this plant. It's more easy to procure CO2 from other sources responsibly, of course, and do the injection and mineralization verification separately from uh, the wind and direct air capture component of the process. Of course, that also needs to be de-risked, but we can we can carve this up to make things more manageable from a project execution perspective. Okay, so you've covered the project, the academic process, the 
results that you've obtained and you've applied some professional speculation about how these results might be cross-applied to other technologies or locations that you might be interested in studying. So is there anything else you'd like to add at this stage or not? Nothing that comes to mind. I'm just I'm just glad that the conversation is still open, that it's not falling across normal political fault lines for some controversial things, and that um, that I hope more of this research goes on. Okay, great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It just remains for me to give you the traditional and wholly unjustified review to rejection. And uh, we will look forward to hearing more from your project on a personal level. I hope it's it be nice to see a bit more DAC being tested around the world. And it'd be nice to see some more surveys as people become more familiar with the technology. I, I think based on my own experiences with things like wind turbines in my local area, once the technology is up and running, people become a lot more comfortable with it. So let's hope that the public accessibility improves as a result of well-run technology um, being deployed by these various projects and companies. Thank you all for coming on the show, and maybe we'll speak again in another episode soon. Goodbye. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, Andrew.